Um, yeah, sorry, I'm just a little late, but um, it's, it's so encouraging to be at, at our other campuses and just to see the, the community of people that are gathered to worship, and um, it was wonderful to be at Yorkson today, and uh, we can be praying, just so you know, if you want to pray for Pastor Jeff and his wife, Michelle, I don't know if it's already been mentioned here yet today, but Michelle just lost her father, and so they're up in Houston, B.C., doing the memorial, and uh, so you can pray for Michelle Renault and, uh, and how she's doing, so... Anyway, so my name is Matthew. If you are new to church, or maybe you've been new, the la- you're like, well, I'm not new anymore. I've been coming the last couple of weeks. That's great. I love that. And, uh, and so glad that you're a part of, of this series. We're in week three of our seven-week series entitled The Jesus Revolution and Why It's Really Good News. And uh, if, if, um, if you are joining us on the live stream, I'm so glad that you've been tuning in because I know that some of you who are new to Jesus have been watching the live stream. And so welcome to you. So we've been basing this series uh, on the, uh, uh, this amazing book that I read over the summer entitled The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. And it was so encouraging for me this summer. And in the book, he argues that most people um, uh, think that there are these seven values that are really good ideas. And those values are equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And that these, these seven ideas that we as Canadians, we kind of believe these seven, idea, seven ideas are, are really good ideas, that they're great. But he argues that most people don't realize where these ideas come from. The Canadians aren't sure, now he's writing about the Western world in general, but that, that when I was thinking about it, I thought, man, I, I'm not sure that Canadians really realize where these seven ideas or these seven values that, that they're rooted in, that they're inspired by, that they're deeply connected to Christianity, or what we're calling the Jesus Revolution. The past two weeks, I've read a, a quote from British author Tom Holland, who says that the Jesus Revolution 2,000 years ago uh, has been the most powerful and enduring revolution in history. He says this, quote, 2,020 years after the birth of Christ, we remain the children of the Christian revolution, the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in history. We remain today the children of the Jesus revolution. We are living in the echo of that revolution, and it's like the air we breathe. And my hope is that week by week, you and I will continue to look at these seven ideas and follow the breadcrumbs. And if we do, I think they will lead us to Jesus. So the last two weeks, we've explored the topics of equality and consent, and today, sorry, equality and compassion, and today we move on to the topic of consent. The topic of consent. Okay, quick note, I think you've already been told this, but this is really not an appropriate sermon for for children, and so uh, if you are here and you have a child in the room, uh, or middle school student in the room, or whatever, I just want to let you know that that this is, uh, I will let you as a parent decide whether you think your child is old enough to hear this content. And the other thing I want to say is that um, the After Sunday podcast that Pastor Corey and I do together um, is, is just, there's a bunch of stuff each week that sometimes doesn't make it into the, to the sermon. And so we're working through a variety of, of ideas that didn't quite make it into the sermon and also a lot of pushback um, to, to the series. Some of you have written in emails or you've had thoughts that you've shared with us and we're able to wrestle with those on the podcast. And I also hope you're able to wrestle with them uh, in life groups. Um, as a church. So, so as we, as we uh, dive into the topic of consent, uh, some words from St. Thomas Aquinas. Quote, to love is to will the good of the other. To love is to will the good 
of the other. And from Jesus, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us a way to live. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we would ask that in the coming minutes that you would speak to us, that you would pour your love upon us, and that we would truly see the beautiful life that you have for us as we love one another. Comfort our hearts, convict us where we need conviction, but we pray that all of it today, everything that, we, that we're learning, that we're discovering, um, that you would give us the strength to apply it to our lives, that we would honor you and love you. In your name, amen. All right, as we begin, quick question. Who else is very warm right now? Is anyone else really warm? Kind of, slightly? Is it just me? Is it just that I ran across the street and uh, I'm just a little warm? Okay, all right, well, anyway. If it gets a little warm, let's, let's, let's turn the AC on. Okay, so uh, speaking of, I want to talk about the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. <laughs> At the risk of starting to talk about Christmas way too soon, in the movie Elf, uh, some of you will remember the lighthearted scene where Will Ferrell and Zoe Deschanel are singing Baby, It's Cold Outside in the locker room, right? Do you remember that scene? Yes, yes. And... Um, yeah, unless you've been living under a rock, you've seen Elf. So uh, it's, it's, it's a funny scene, but the past couple Christmases, we've been rethinking the lyrics to that song. Baby, It's Cold Outside won the Academy Award uh, for Best Song in 1950, and it's become one of the most popular holiday songs of the season. Actually, Time Magazine named it one of the 100 best songs of all time. Of all time. As you know... Uh, it's a call and response song. So um, the girl kind of sings a line and then the guy sings a line after her. And in the song, the setting is, to bring all of you who have no idea of pop culture up to speed, if you don't know this song, um, that sounded really mean, the way I just said that. Anyway, to introduce the song to you, uh, it's getting late, the woman wants to go home, but the man wants her to stay, right? So the woman speaks first and then the man chimes in. So she says, I simply must go and the man says, but baby, it's cold outside. And she says, the answer is no, right? But baby, it's cold outside. Now notice, just, I want to pause there. The answer is no, right? The answer is no. Now you might go, oh, that's like, like that's a playful no. Like it's, 19, it's the 1950s. That's how they said yes then, right? And it's like, okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, I don't think so, but uh, so it's a fun cat and mouse game, right, is in, your, in, in our minds sometimes, we think. But actually, like, like I mean, if you take the, take the lyrics of the song seriously, like, the answer is no, right? The answer is no. And then look at this line. Say, what's in this drink? She's drinking something, and she's like, what am I drinking? And then he says, the, no cabs to be had out there. Like, the taxi ain't coming for you. I wish I knew how. And then he says, your eyes are like starlight now. So like notice, pause, she's drinking some kind of alcohol that's making her eyes like starlight now, right? And no cab can take her home? She's stuck. She's stuck. Now it's all like this playful song, but if you actually think about the lyrics, like this is a, ve this is a very dangerous situation for this woman, right? Now to break this spell, 
He says, I'll take your hat. Your hair looks swell. He just keeps going. And then she says, I ought to say, no, 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 sir. And he says, mind if I move in closer? Like the woman's no is somehow a yes to the guy, right? He's not listening. He's not listening. Now, Christmas of 2018 was when we started hearing about this song being canceled, right? Now, okay, then that brings up this whole thing on canceling, you know, songs and pieces of art and the whole thing. And, and, and you, we all might have different ideas about that. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that canceling this song was a great idea because what it did uh, is it actually shot it up into the top 10 of Billboard's digital sales the week it was getting canceled in December of 2018. And so the week it was getting canceled, it had a 70% increase in digital downloads. So that's pr probably not the idea that people had when they were trying to cancel it, right? And when you start talking about the song, you're going to hum it. Like, unfortunately, you're probably going to hum this song uh, later on in the day. I did for the last few days. So listen, we can have a debate on whether songs should be canceled or not, but the debate is th there. And, and I think it's good. It's forcing a conversation. We got to have this conversation about lyrics like that. In 2006, uh, Tarana Burke coined the phrase, Me Too. Burke is a survivor of sexual assault, and she was hoping to help women and young girls of color who, along with her, had experienced sexual abuse. On October 5th, 2017, some of you will remember this, Ashley Judd accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual abuse. And 10 days later, the Chicago Tribune wrote, quote, Ac actress Alyssa Milano reignites Me Too with the tweet, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. And it quickly turned into a movement. And we're aware of this movement, right? The Me Too movement. And the movement is igniting a conversation around consent. And in the church, we've had our own reckoning, right? The Church Too movement where many victims of abuse in the church are coming forward with their stories. They're stepping uh, into the light, and it's very painful uh, for, for some of these victims to step into the light in, in places like a church or a parachurch ministry or a church camp or whatever. And one of the biggest uh, stories of sexual abuse in the last number of years is the story of Larry Nasser at USA Gymnastics. Larry Nasser, the team doctor, was trusted for years to provide medical assistance to the team. But in his role throughout the years, he abused at least 265 young girls as the team doctor. 265 young female gymnasts. And Rachel Den Hollander, who's now a Christian lawyer, was one of the first victims to come forward to bring into the light what Larry Nasser had done to her and others when they were just these little girls. As Rachel gave her victim impact statement in court, she asked this, she said, how much is a little girl worth? How much is a little girl worth? She went on to say to the judge, quote, Judge Aquilina, I plead with you as you deliberate the sentence to give Larry, uh, the sentence to give Larry, send a message that these victims are worth everything, everything. In order to meet both the goals of this court, I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. Thank you. The survivors are worth everything. These little girls, they matter. 
And when you and I hear stories of abuse like this, something deep within us wants to cry out for justice. Like, we know this is wrong, right? We know it deep within us. And what I'm saying today really connects with our first week, right, on equality, on every human being having dignity before the eyes of God. And I know that in a room like this, that there are many of you, many in this room, who have been victims of sexual abuse, and you're living with the trauma of that abuse. And just, just to start, like, I can't imagine what you're walking through, and I'm so sorry for what you've had to live with. And if you're in that place today, I hope that as the days and weeks and months go on, that, that, and maybe even starting with now, like today, that you'll begin to, to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gentleness of Jesus, and the love of God for you. So we want to begin with the definition of consent. What are we talking about here? So, so specifically, what does consent look like in our sexual relationships? Now, quick note, today I'm talking about consent in general, uh, both in a marriage and outside of a marriage. And as a follower of Jesus, I believe that sex is supposed to be part of, it's reserved for a marriage alone. But you might be here and you are new to Jesus and you don't yet share that opinion, and uh, I'm really glad you're here. So whether we believe that sex belongs only in a marriage or whether we uh, believe that sex is fine outside of a marriage, I think we can all agree, I think we can all agree, that the freedom to be able to, to give our consent or withhold it is a good idea, that it's a good idea. And so let's define it first. So the dictionary says that to consent is to give assent or approval. Simple enough, right? Simple enough. So to give consent is to give approval, that you have the opportunity and freedom to give approval to any kind of action that draws you closer to another person physically. Do you have that freedom? The Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network uh, in the United States gives a definition, and here it is. Quote, consent is an agreement between participants to engage in sexual activity. Consent should be clearly and freely communicated. Consent cannot be given by individuals who are underage, intoxicated, or incapacitated by drugs or alcohol, or asleep or unconscious. If someone agrees to an activity under pressure of intimidation or threat, that isn't considered consent because it was not given freely. Unequal power dynamics also mean that consent cannot be freely given. Now notice the two words, freely given. Freely given. Today we care about whether someone has been able to freely give their consent to a sexual relationship or not. Like we care about that. When that doesn't happen, we call it abuse. The trauma counselor Diane Langberg says, quote, to abuse is to, is to use wrongly. That's all it is, it's to use wrongly. And she writes this, quote, to freely consent means it is safe to say no. I wanna read that again. To freely consent means it is safe to say no. Is it safe to say no in your life? Okay, so where do we get this idea of consent from? And the question almost sounds absurd, doesn't it? It's like, what are you talking about, <laughs> right? Like, it's obvious, right? Like, it's common sense. Of course, people should 
be free to safely give or withhold their consent. All right, so I want to push back on that idea. Like, okay, is it actually obvious? Is it really common sense? Let's go on a bit of a journey here. So let's begin by looking at the ancient world, or very specifically, the ancient Roman world. Maybe the world has always believed that this was a good idea. Kyle Harper, a professor of classics and letters at the University of Oklahoma, my hometown, uh, wrote the book From Shame to Sin, and he explores the transformation of sexual morality in the Roman Empire. He writes this, quote, the complete violent exploitation of women without any claim to civic protection was simply as a problem in its own right, invisible. It was invisible. The complete violent exploitation of women, right? It, it was an invisible problem, right? No one was talking about it. It was simply not a problem in the ancient Roman world. And I'm told that a Roman man had the complete unquestioned right to use the bodies of his wife, children, and slaves in whatever way he chose. A Roman man had an unquestioned access to prostitution as well. Unquestioned access. Joseph Heinrich, in his book, The Weirdest People in the World, makes a note that that, check this out, the Latin language, which was the language of the empire, the Roman empire, right? And in the Latin language, there were 25 words for a prostitute or different kinds of prostitution, 25 different Latin words, and not a single Latin word for a male virgin. A male virgin, right? Now think about that for a second. That sums up the kind of culture Rome had. And what about children in the Roman empire? Glenn Scrivener, in his book, writes this. In the ancient world, sex with boys and girls was not merely tolerated, it was celebrated by writers like Juvenal, Petronius, Horace, Strato, Lucian, and Philostratus. The word they used was pederasty. Note this, so pederasty, which is love of children. That's what the word means, love of children. Christians were uniformly disgusted by the practice and called it by a different name, paedophtheros which actually means the destruction of children, right? So it moves from love of children to destruction of children. In the reign of the Christian emperor Justinian, pederasty was outlawed and could be prosecuted well after the abuse took place. Here, church and state, preaching and legislation, worked together as a one-two punch against the sexualization of children. See, it is so normal to us today that that, 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 we, that the sexual abuse of children is wrong. It's so normal, right? We cannot imagine a world where it was permitted. Am I right? We just can't imagine that. Scrivener argues that that's because we live on this side, historically, of the Jesus revolution. Now, just so you know, I'm aware that some of you may not agree with that just yet, right? But just run with this for a second, right? That we have inherited... The right way to love children thanks to Jesus. And I'll say more about that in a second. But it was not always common sense to treat children in this way, in the way we treat them today, right? But it is now, and let's celebrate that. Like, that's like a really good thing. It's a good thing that it's common sense now, that we wouldn't treat children this way. So, the violent exploitation of women and sex, and sex with children was acceptable in, in ancient Rome. So we didn't get our belief of consent from there. So 
So where, where did we get it from? Well, maybe we got it from the animal kingdom or the natural world around us. So let's, let's look at the natural world. Let's check out the animal kingdom. In the animal world, it's common to see males of many species use harassment to force females to mate with them. Right? It seems to happen mostly among monkeys, ducks, dolphins, and bears. Joseph Heinrich compares humans uh, with apes and monkeys, and he wonders, he questions if maybe we share some similar practices with monkeys when it comes to consent. And the answer is a clear no, <laughs> not at all. Humans, not apes and monkeys, are the only ones who practice monogamy, or at least try to practice monogamy. So consent doesn't seem to come from the ancient world, and consent doesn't seem to come from the animal world around us. So this is a legit question. <laughs> so where do our assumptions that we find are just so common today, right? Where, where do those assumptions come from? Where do those beliefs come from when it comes to consent? By the way, I, I just love hearing back from some of you who are, who are on a journey or you're new to Jesus and you're asking these questions. I would love to hear from you. If you are new to Jesus and you've come as a guest with someone, please reach out. I would love to hear, um, yeah, how you build your moral framework in your life. So where do we get these assumptions from? Well, let's consider the teachings of Jesus for a moment. Let's listen to Jesus' golden rule. Matthew 7. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying this, and I'm paraphrasing. He's saying, if I want people to honor my boundaries, to listen to me, to care for me, to protect my dignity, I should do that to others. Now, North Langley, just can you imagine an entire group of people who live this way? It would be really good, really good, right? If a whole bunch of people live this way together. See, to practice the golden rule would be to truly desire to know if someone was consenting or not. That's love. Did you know that in the Greek language, there's a few different words for love? See, we have just one word, love, and I love popcorn like I love my grandma. Probably not helpful, right? Like, that's not great. So, but there's different words for love. So, the word eros is the Greek word where we get, we get the word erotic love, so it's actually a sexual love or the love between uh, spouses, like it's eros. And then uh, phileo is another Greek word, and that means uh, friendship. It's a friendship love. Uh, the love between friends. So, like, if you're my friend, then I phileo you when I say I love you, right? I phileo you. That's a city of Philadelphia, right? It's a city of brotherly love. And so, so that's a helpful word, word to distinguish between sexual love and friendship love. That's helpful. And, uh, but then there's another word. It's the word agape, which is the Greek word um, that, that really captures the love of God, agape love. It's the sacrificial and self-giving love of God. A love that loves regardless of circumstance. It's not always a feeling, but it's always an action. The F.F. F. F. Bruce, the late Scottish biblical scholar, calls agape love, the agape love of God, quote, a consuming passion for the well-being of others. Oh, it's so powerful, right? A consuming passion for the well-being of others. Think about that in light of consent, in light of sexual relationships. Do you have a consuming passion for the well-being of the other? 
And then the Apostle Paul, who was just lear- he had learned uh, from the teachings of Jesus, he challenged men specifically to, to live this way, to, to live out the agape love of God. And he writes this, husbands, love your wives, right? Just as Christ loved, agape the church and gave himself up for her. Many of us are aware that sexual abuse can happen in marriages, right? And Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. Well, how did Jesus love the church? Well, he left everything. He left his privilege. He, he left all power, and he came, and he died for the church. He died for you and I. He gave up his life for her, the church, That's sacrifice, that's care, that's selflessness, that's selfless love. Again, as St. Thomas Aquinas said, to love is to will the good of the other. Now, let's really describe this love. What does the love of Jesus look like? Well, again, Paul, um, writing in the New Testament, uh, he, he wrote his definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the passage you hear at almost every wedding ever. And, uh, but when you read 1 Corinthians 13, it, these words look a lot like Jesus, right? So the definition of love looks a lot like Jesus. Now, as we read this passage, I want to let you know that I've emphasized or highlighted the words here that, that would teach us um, how to honor someone's ability to freely consent. But let's, let's go through the list together. Paul writes this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, pause there, look at that, always protects, always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. So those words that I emphasize there are just, look at that, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it always protects. This is what love looks like. This is what love looks like. This is the agape love of God. This is what Jesus-centered relationships of love should look like. They have not always looked like this in the church and amongst Christians, right? But this brings clarity to what every Christian relationship should be moving towards. It's this kind of love. It's not self-seeking. It always protects. What about the children? In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus had called a little child to come to him, and he warned people of the consequences of hurting little children. And Jesus said this, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You know, we often think, oh, Jesus, he was just kind of like a hippie, right? It's like, no, 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 look at the judgment, right? Look at that. In other words, don't mess with my beautiful children, says Jesus, or there will be consequences, Finally, every, every Christian heard the good news in the gospel of Jesus that their bodies mattered, that their bodies mattered. Their bodies aren't just 
piece of trash, right? That actually, they matter. And listen to Paul. He says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Now imagine, Northangley, imagine a whole bunch of people who are shaped by all of these teachings. Ephesians 5, about Christ loving the church. 1 Corinthians 6, about your body being a temple. What Jesus said about children. Then the whole list of love, right? 1 Corinthians 13. And then the golden rule about doing to others as you'd have them do to you. Like early Christians were influenced by this. And they started to live it out, right? And then they expanded. Some of you may not know the history, but it's, they started off in what is Israel today, in, in, in uh, Galilee and, and uh, Jerusalem, and they, they fanned out across the Mediterranean world. And they took this ethic with them. They lived out relationships that imperfectly, but still pointed towards this, right? And the first 300 years of that Jesus revolution, it turned the sexual ethics, or lack thereof, of the Roman Empire completely upside down. It's incredible. And Glenn Scrivener argues that, that, you know, the church brought a sexual revolution that has impacted the world in a way that far outpaces the sexual revolution of the 1960s. That's nothing compared to what happened in the world as, as the followers of Jesus began to live out this agape love amongst each other. I want to give you an example really quick. There was a critic of Christianity named Celsus who lived in the second century, and he, he wrote this in the empire. He said, Christians, this is not a very kind sentence towards Christians. He says, Christians, quote, are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children, right? He says, you know, listen, it's only slaves, women, and little children that are joining the Jesus movement, right? Uh, well, joke's on him, because that like literally turned the empire upside down, right? Uh, women and children and slaves were flocking to Christianity and just like outnumbered the pagan empire, right? Like, why? Because women and children and slaves found a place where they could experience safety. This was a place where they were given dignity. No wonder it turned the empire upside down. So consent doesn't seem to come from the ancient world. Consent doesn't seem to come from the animal world around us. So I believe that when you and I, at a gut level, know that to be able to freely consent or not is a good thing, that that comes to you and I from Jesus and his revolution of agape love. A note to Christians. Christians, we have to stay true to the teachings of Jesus. We have to stay true to the teachings of Jesus. We have not always been faithful to the teachings of our Savior. Today, there are very popular ways of talking about sex in Christian circles that are profoundly unhelpful. Just because there's a book in a Christian store by a Christian publisher doesn't mean that the advice is good, right? A couple years ago, a team of three women, Christian women, began the largest study ever done on Christian women's marital and sexual satisfaction. They did a massive study, and it's been put together, their conclusions were put together in a book called The Great Sex Rescue, and here's the, the subtext, the lies you've been taught and how to recover what God intended. And in their study, they, they, they surveyed 20,000 Christian women, asking at least 130 questions. And they fleshed out those findings in these intense focus groups and interviews, and the study showed a huge problem 
in how we talk about men and their struggle with lust and addiction to pornography. And they found the following. Let me just give you a, a little glimpse of some of their findings. First, they found that women who believe lust is every man's battle are 79% more likely to have sex only because they feel they must, 135% more likely to be frequently afraid their husbands will look at porn or other women. Another, founding, another finding was that women who get married believing they need to have sex with their husbands to help prevent their porn use are... 37% more likely to report having sex only out of a sense of obligation, and 65% more likely to be frequently afraid their husbands will look at porn or other women. Followers of Jesus, we've got a problem here, right? We're not living the values of the Jesus revolution. Does this sound like 1 Corinthians 13 to you? No, it sounds like lust management. It sounds like enabling Christian men to make poor decisions. It sounds like fear. There's a lot of fear here, right? It doesn't sound like love. How many Christian wives are saying, no, 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 while Christian husbands are saying, mind if I move in closer? Now, I, I, uh, I know that th this is a problem also the other way around. Um, and a friend of mine told me about, uh, you know, growing resources for men who are in that place with, with women who are taking advantage of their husbands. But today, I'd like, just as a man, I'd like to focus on Christian men for, for, for this morning. And I want to ask you, as Christian men, have we instilled a fear that if our wives don't meet our sexual expectations, that they are to blame if we then turn to porn or to other women? See, we as followers of Jesus, men, we have the responsibility to walk in the freedom of the Holy Spirit when it comes to lust and porn, regardless of the circumstances of our marriage, right? I mean, we follow Jesus, who his whole life was a virgin. He was chaste. He lived out a life of chastity. And we follow Paul, who seemed to be single for a huge part of his life and lived out a holy sexuality. So we have this responsibility ourselves, individually, as Christian men, to walk in that freedom of the Holy Spirit, regardless of the circumstance of our marriage. And see, our holiness, our sexual holiness, doesn't depend on our wife's sexual availability. Our holiness does not depend on our wife's sexual availability. So Christian men, is it safe to say no to you? it safe to say no to you? Diane Langberg, again, to freely consent means it's safe to say no. See, consent implies good communication, and good communication is love in action, listening to each other, giving space to one another, and genuinely willing the good of the other. Does that describe you? Does that describe the choices you're making? As we begin to bring this to a close, let me ask this. What are the standards by which you judge abuse? And where do you get those standards from? Again, I want to say, this is a genuine question. This is the journey we're on for these seven weeks, right? Where do you get your standards of right and wrong from? 
Scrivener writes, all this forces us to consider the standards by which we judge abuse. For abuse to be abuse, we have to believe certain things, that bodies should be treated as temples, that sex is sacred, that children are valuable, and that the powerful should not exploit the weak, but serve them. See, if there is no God, and it's all survival of the fittest, and all things are relative, then where do we come up with the ideas, our ideas of right and wrong from? Rachel Den Hollander writes this in her book, What is a Girl Worth? She says, quote, there is a God who defines good and evil. There was no way around that. Either truth was, in some form, dependent on human ideas, which meant that good and evil were subject to opinion, or the definition of good and evil came from someone higher than human beings. There had to be a God. So again, what are the standards by which you judge abuse? Where do you get those standards from? As you are on this journey, if you are new to Jesus, if you're exploring these things, I would argue that you don't find those standards in the ancient world. I would argue that you don't find those standards in the animal kingdom or in the natural world. As you know, I would argue that we get these standards of right and wrong from Jesus. And you and I are living on this side of the Jesus revolution. And that's really a good thing, especially for women and children. Now, I want to say one final thing. Uh, we have been applauding consent, right? All morning, right? And that's good. But I believe consent is actually a low bar. It's a good bar. It's really good, but it's a low bar. It's not enough. It's just the start. This past March, Christine Emba, writing for the Washington Post in an article entitled Consent is Not Enough, she said this, the experience of dating and finding a partner is often sad, unsettling, even traumatic. This is the problem with consent. It leaves so much out. Non-consensual sex is always wrong, full stop. But that doesn't mean consensual sex is always right. Even sex that is agreed to can be harmful to an individual, their partner, or to society at large. She's right. Consent is not enough. Again, it's a good tool, but it's just the beginning. It's the start. It's not the end. If we just have consent as our sexual ethic, there's still an emptiness there. Why is that? You see, in the Bible, in the very uh, first chapter, we get this picture in the book of Genesis. We get this vision, this vision of marriage, of a, of a man and a woman coming together to become one. And in the Bible, it says one flesh, like one body together. One physically, but one, oneness in the rest of life, financially, with children, with dreams and hopes for the future. So what these, this man and this woman in this marriage do in, in that act of oneness, when their sexual oneness is just a reflection of the oneness they have in the rest of life? So when we have sex outside of marriage, it's saying, I am one with this person, when in reality, I'm not. Right? I'm not one with them. I'm not, we're not sharing our common dreams for the future. We're not sharing a teamwork in raising our children together. Or we're not sharing our finances. We don't have one bank account, right? And so there is this sense in which uh, oneness is not true. It's not true. So that's why when, we, when, when sex outside of marriage occurs, it leaves this emptiness. Because we're saying something true, something with our body that's intrinsically false about our reality. And there's a pain there, right? See, so I would say consent is good. It's good but it's not enough. And if you're new to Jesus, all I want to do right now is just point you to 
the fact that there's a lot more. <laughs> there's a lot more. The Bible has a vision for marriage that I think you'll love. Because at the heart of a Christian marriage should be the concept of agape love, selfless love. Remember, to love is to will the good of the other. Well, I'd like to end where we started with the story of Rachel Den Hollander and her abuser, Larry Nasser. Scrivener writes this. Listen to your own heartfelt response when Den Hollander asks, what is a little girl worth? You do not answer that question scientifically or economically, nor do you answer it merely sociologically or psychologically. The deepest and truest answer to that question is a spiritual one. And when a guttural everything, what is a little girl worth? Everything rises up within you. That is your Christianity talking. To those of you who are new to Jesus, the entire hope of my message today is simply to say this. If you believe in consent, I believe that you already believe in one of the core beliefs of the Jesus revolution, which is agape love. If you believe in consent, I think you will love Jesus a lot. Let's stand together. As I say every week, I wanna let you know about our incredible prayer team. Some are gonna come forward, some are gonna be in the prayer room, and I know that a message like this can bring to light all kinds of emotions, feelings, thoughts, um, and it can bring up a longing for God, a longing for his life, for his healing, for his love to be poured out upon you. And uh, just so you know, our prayer team is very sensitive. They, you, don't, you don't have to give details even of why you're coming. But they would just love to pray with you. If you just say, I want more of you, God. I need more of you. I feel so dry. I feel empty. I want to begin the road to healing. Whatever it is, our prayer team would love to pray, pray with you. Let's end with the cross of Jesus. I would welcome you to close your eyes, um, to see Jesus on the cross. For all of you who have walked through some form of trauma or abuse, see Jesus. He understands abuse. He's felt the pain of abuse in his own heart and in his own flesh. He knows what betrayal feels like. He knows what the bullying feels like. He knows what the false accusations feel like. And he knows what physical pain feels like. But he walks through all of it with this deep agape love for us. And as, I, as Isaiah the prophet, prophet had prophesied, that by his wounds we would be healed. By his wounds we're healed. He loves you and he's poured out this selfless love for you. He wants to teach us how to love, but that begins as we are healed by his love. So will you receive his love again today? Jesus, would you pour out your love upon this place? Convict us, heal us, strengthen us, that we would live out the good news of your agape love in our lives. We love you. Amen.